lawyer talk. Here we are again. A special guest today. We are going to talk about one of my favorite topics, really. Guns. We have Derek DeBross, gun specialist, attorney, friend. Uh, but uh, Derek, you are, uh, you've got a law firm exclusively designed to help folks about gun, firearm, and other issues, huh? Yeah, Munitions Law Group, uh, website's munitionsgroup.com. Uh, that's all we do is represent the industry and private consumers that deal with anything in the firearms and sporting goods industry. So munitionslawgroup.com. You said a whole lot in a, in a, in a very short period of time. but uh, It's munitionsgroup.com. Munitionsgroup.com. <clears throat> I got you. Well, it, it, Jared, you don't know this, but Derek and I have worked on a, a bunch of cases together gun-wise. Um where folks have been accused of crimes related to uh, either self-defense or something other than, uh, you know, or something related to firearm issues, whether it's a federal firearms offense, whether it's self-defense in a state court case or, or, or any of the sort. And uh, I have just found that over the years when I need a question answered about guns, this is the guy I call. Anyway, we're going to answer a bunch of questions about guns. I, I sort of foresee this thing going farther uh, than just today, but this is a, this is a great introduction. So, Derek, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, man? How'd you get your start? Um, how far back do you want me to go? Well, guess wherever you, you want. Like to my start. history of firearms ownership, yeah, well, I can do that. Let's let's hear the history of Derek. Debra. You were in the military. <laughs> I was in the military before that. I grew up in Piqua, Ohio, which is you ever heard of Piqua? I know Piqua. Yeah. Do you guys love Troy, right? Yeah, I think that's our rival. I didn't go to high school. They went to Sydney Lehman Catholic, but and went to Ohio State and uh, got a degree in unemployment, otherwise known as political science. So I decided law school is the route to go. <laughs> that was like my history degree. Yeah, pretty much useless degree, you know. Um, so I, I always wanted to go to law school. Didn't know what I wanted to do with it. But in the middle of that, I was in the military and I did a combat tour of duty in Iraq. Um, got a uh, combat action badge when I was there and got to shoot all the big guns and I actually got rid of the few guns I had when I got back from overseas. But got that behind me and then went to law school and uh, got my, my JD from Regent University in Virginia. And I graduated in the wonderful year of 2008. You remember what happened then, right? Yeah, lots of jobs, yeah. lots of opportunity yeah, back with in offers. 2008. Yeah, yeah, I remember that very well. And so I had to do something. So I did what any good uh, hustler would do like yourself, and I got on the court appointed list in municipal court and found that I was okay at, you know, pretty decent at defense work, and I liked it. So uh, then I realized that nobody was uh, focusing their practice solely in guns. There's attorneys out there that would do guns and they would do expungements and they would talk about restoration, but no one really understood it, to be quite honest, from a comprehensive standpoint. Um, so I started marking myself like that and really became uh, one of the leading attorneys in the country on restoration of rights for felons and other people that are disabled. I've taught several times at the NRA National Convention. I'm going to be teaching this year as well in Indianapolis at the uh, legal seminar. Uh, and then uh, I met Clay Cheshire, my partner out of Georgia. He runs our Atlanta office, soon to be running our Louisville office. Uh, through a, a mutual um, uh, sort of an employer, we were contracted to this organization to do represent industry clients, FFLs, which means federal firearms licensees. And, you know, we hit it off. And from there, we spun out Munitions Law Group. So you guys are not just doing uh, somebody's in trouble with a gun or somebody needs to get uh, a restoration. I mean, you're sort of at the the level above that where you're talking about folks who actually build guns, manufacture yeah. guns, and and sell them. Either. Import them. We represent people all over the world, you know, importers, exporters, manufacturers. Uh, you know, uh, I primarily handle what I call the consumer and pellet practice, so more of the down-in-the-trenches type of work with restoration rights, defense, and Clay's more of the industry guy. I mean, we even do taxes for manufacturers. We do anything and everything in that industry. That is our bread and butter. 
Now, it's interesting you, you mentioned uh, that topic. You know, we're, we're spinning off, you and I, a new website called Gun Crime Defense. Yep. And uh, that's going to be launched here in the near future. So. What, what a marriage, huh? So imagine that. Uh, folks might need help with criminal defense, and they have gun issues. And, uh, you know, like I started out, Derek, we worked on a bunch of cases together, and I think we quickly realized there is a unique— there. it's not just normal— criminal defense stuff. Often there is more to it, particularly in this day and age that I have found when there's so many guys running around with uh, a license to carry a concealed handgun, mm-hmm. uh, they have specific training on what they should and shouldn't do. And uh, there are just more issues coming up all the time, either with self-defense, whether they were right or whether they were wrong. Uh, folks are needing some more specific, mm-hmm. unique, and I think specialized help in that. So we've started a a whole separate area of practice just to address that need. And, yeah. and the idea is that uh, it's not just it's not just criminal defense, it's not just guns, it sort of merges there in a way that I think uh, uh, folks will need experience with trial work uh, or criminal defense trial work with uh, uh, self-defense law, mm-hmm. um, uh, the, the force continuum stuff that we've had to deal with in our cases over the years. And you have a Rolodex of folks who uh, who really provide expert assistance in all those areas. Yeah, we have uh, retired ATF agents. One of our, our consultants has worked there for 42 years. You know, he ran the licensing division. Uh, we have law enforcement, FBI on a Rolodex, uh, former FBI, of course. Everybody's retired or former. Uh, we have uh, engineers, whoever we need, we have. And what's interesting about the gun uh, laws nowadays, they're getting more and more regulated especially on transfers. And you and I have worked on federal cases together where people have uh, handled, manufactured, and or transferred guns and run afoul of federal law. And those laws are very nuanced and very complicated. So it's important that, you know, we have the expertise to defend these people properly. Yeah, let me tell you, I've had, recently I had an experience where I, uh, for Christmas, uh, my father-in-law had a gun that his dad's dad passed down, an old 870 Wingmaster. And it was a shotgun and by itself, it really doesn't have a whole lot of value. You know, you're not going to go mm-hmm. sell it. They made so many of those things, and it was such a uh, – it, it was just everybody had one. Uh, but it has sentimental value and a lot of uh, family value. And we took it up to a guy who is a gunsmith, and um, he was going to – he reblued it for us, mm-hmm. and he uh, refinished the stock. And even then on the way up, because of the work I've done with you, I was thinking to myself, all right, we've got to leave this thing here. This is going to qualify as gunsmithing, and that's going to trigger all sorts of crap that nobody even thinks about, right? Yeah, right. I mean, just if I take a gun to a gunsmith for repair, that requires the gunsmith to actually have some credentials and do some things with it. Maybe. Yeah, that's the problem, right? It's always like maybe. It just yeah. depends, on, depends on which way the wind's blowing for the ATF that day. Yeah. Um, but there has been some opinions out there that said, depending on what kind of gunsmithing they do, it can get into the realm of what they define as manufacturing, which requires them to be federally licensed. Yeah. And then if you don't do that, uh, you subject yourself to federal court. And we're not talking, I mean, this is where I come in, right? So once you get a federal court indictment, it's not like going to a quick little plea bargain to misdemeanors. I mean, <clears throat> you're talking prison, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, sentencing guidelines that would recommend prison, even on these regulatory things, which... Uh, is really sort of crazy. But uh, anyway, we're sort of getting a little bit farther away. We have, uh, I get all sorts of questions all the time uh, about guns, what you can do, what you can't do, et cetera. And uh, you even got some today that I thought we would just sort of kick through. Yeah, we can go through those and we can talk about just general topics after that if you guys want. Sure. Transporting Um, guns, transferring guns, whatever. Before we get to that, and those are great questions. You know, that's one of the most 
common questions I get. Car carry. What do I do if I have a gun in the car? Can I yep. do this? Can I do that? But uh, before, I wanted to get your comments and thoughts about, I, I read somewhere, I don't think it's going to pass, but it has yet again been proposed that all private transfers of firearms are going to require right. uh, background checks or FFLs. So in theory, we actually covered this. Remember, Jerry, we did this on the show at one point. There was, uh, in theory then, if I just sell you my gun, we're going down to Vance's or somebody who's right. got an FFL to transfer it. What is the current, do you know the current status of that or whether that's got some legs? It's not got any legs because we have a Republican Senate. I don't think it's going to get by the Senate. There have been some Republican uh, House members that have said they would sign off on that. I think it's absurd, to be quite frank. And let's look at it this way. Second Amendment's a fundamental individual right incorporated to the states, just like your First Amendment, just like your Fifth Amendment, these types of rights. What if I can't afford to pay for that transfer, right? Do I get a court-appointed attorney? Or, you know, do, what am I entitled to under the Constitution if I can't afford that? Because they're requiring us to invoke a private institution or run a background check. Is there some sort of tax credit I get to pay for this if I'm poor? I should be able to exercise my right if I want to buy a firearm, you know, buy do I have to pay an extra tax on that, you know, to invoke that right? It's an interesting question. It is. And if you were to have a similar right or a similar uh, restriction, uh, sort of I call this, this is like the time, place, manner type restriction, right? Where, right. You, you know, it's like if you have a similar restriction in other area of constitutional rights, people might be up in arms about it with guns. Right. It seems like maybe half the country cares, maybe half the country doesn't, or maybe a third of the country cares, third of the country doesn't even think about it. And then the other third is it will understand that wait a minute, there's some real issues here. It's kind of the bastard of the rights in a lot of ways is the way I look at it. Um, it's just been um, create, it's been made into a second-class right in a lot of ways, and that's kind of a talking point for the, the conservative right. And I hate using those, those key words, but that's honestly the way I feel about it. It's just I, I don't think it's given the respect that it should have. Here, here's what Jared's heard me say it a thousand times. Every time somebody is willing to give up a right for their cause— then they are, it is a very short-sighted thought or is a short-sighted thought process because the very next right that is taken away for somebody else's cause might be one you care about. Sure. And, uh, you know, it's not like we have a whole lot of them. We, we put most of them right there in writing in the first 10 amendments. We actually have a book around here. I don't know where that thing is right now. Well, you, you look at what President Trump just did with the bump stock. Now, uh, take the bump stock item out of the picture. He did this by executive order. Uh, an order that basically makes bump stocks, quote unquote, machine guns, whereas before the ATF has determination letters, says they're not machine guns. And, and the left loves this, right? The anti-gun community loves this. But who's to say a conservative president can't just by executive fiat do something they don't like now, right? Yeah. There, there's long ranging consequences to this that I don't think most of society has really contemplated. Well, I mean, we're going to go off real briefly on this on this executive power because I hate it. It's I don't terrible. care if you're a Republican. I don't care if you're a Democrat. I don't care if you're whatever you are. It's un-American. If you are, yeah, exactly. Now all of a sudden we're talking about kings. Yeah. And, and if you're going to let our president make unilateral executive decisions just because you happen to agree with whatever he or she is doing at that right. time, then you are opening the opening up the door for more of those decisions that you don't agree with. This, I, I mean, I noticed this with Obama. And it goes way back. I mean, we're not, oh, sure. you know, it goes way back to the New Deal and some other things that uh, that, that were happening. But no, you're right. I mean, it, it's a it's a bad deal. And, and even if it's Trump declaring an emergency and doing and building a wall by executive right. order. They're not know. up in arms about that. You know, they're up in arms about that, but not the bump stock. Right. I mean, it's, it, 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 you know, it's crazy to me. It's the same power that lets him do both. Right. Yeah. And if you're going to give that power to the president, you sure as heck better be willing to accept it when it doesn't go your way. Sure. 
So the next president theory just removes the bump stock thing. Right. Or tears down the wall. And now what do you have? You have no consistency and it's contrary to our constitution. But anyway, I needed to go on that little tirade. Um, <laughs> so the, the big question we always get is how do I take my gun to the range or how do I carry my gun? What, uh, what do you tell the guy who's going to the range and wants to take a, a bag full of pistols? So it depends on the type of firearm and whether or not they have a concealed handgun license. So the first thing we have to understand in Ohio is we don't have a CCW license. Everybody calls it that, but that's not right. We have a CHL, so it only applies to handguns. So if I have a CHL, concealed handgun license, it doesn't affect my ability to carry long guns. You know, long guns are still going to be treated uh, like they would even if you didn't have a license. So even if I had a license, I can't put a shotgun underneath my trench coat and walk around. That's, that's correct. You cannot conceal it unless it's considered a handgun as defined under the law. So in your scenario, we have a gentleman who does not have a concealed handgun license. He has, let's say, two Glocks, a Glock 19 and a 45, uh, both 9 millimeters, and he wants to carry the ammunition in the same bag. Now, traditionally, until about two or three years ago, that couldn't be done. So if I had the handgun in the bag and I had um, you know, ammunition in the magazine itself, and those magazines are, say, sitting in a different bag, it was actually considered a loaded firearm under Ohio law, and it was, I think it was an F5, if I remember correctly, improper handling. So if they were in the same bag, or even if they're in a different even bag? In, different in the bag. trunk of the car. Even if they're- One bag guns, one bag I clips. I don't remember if the trunk made a difference or not, but most trunks nowadays you can access from the interior of the vehicle, so it's all considered this part of the same compartment anyhow. Um, but we changed that law, so it's kind of negated at this point about three years ago. And you can now have loaded magazines or stripper clips as long as they're in what we call complete and separate enclosure. So I can put my Glocks in, let's say, a book bag, right, in the main compartment. And then on the front, there's another pocket with a separate zipper. That provides complete and separate enclosure to those magazines. So I can take the loaded magazines and put them in that pocket and zip it up. That would be fine. Uh, what I cannot do is put those magazines in the same compartment as the main firearm. Gotcha. So if I've got a range bag that's got three different zipper compartments, just keep the ammo separate. Is keep the ammo separate. Rule? Yeah, exactly right. And even the same thing with, with in, uh, under no circumstances, unless you have a concealed handgun license, can the firearm be loaded, right? It cannot be armed. Yep. Um, with long guns, uh, same rule basically applies. There's an additional way you can carry long guns, and you can keep it in some sort of like shotgun rack in your car. Um, you can keep it in any holster uh, that's mounted in the car made for that purpose of, of basically you know holstering the firearm or, or storing the firearm. It can also be left exposed with the action locked open. If it can't be locked open, you can um, strip the weapon down and keep it in plain sight. So there's some additional rules that apply to long guns. So if it's like the old urban cowboy, I can have a shotgun rack still in my truck. And Don't see him anymore, gun. though. I haven't seen one since I was in high school. I went to a very rural high school. And we saw him all yeah, the time. I saw him all the time. Don't yeah. see him anymore. People yeah. steal guns. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah, so. I guess I guess the, I never even but thought I about remember, that. I remember high school, oh, deer yeah. season, you'd see the lot filled up. With guns right yeah. in the racks, everybody ready to go. Yeah, well, our this lot was, our, our, was the Ozarks. Yeah. Our lot was empty during deer season, yes. but <laughs> everybody was right. hunting. But yeah, you're right. We I saw them all the time. You know, you don't see them very much anymore because people will break in your car and take the gun. Yeah, I guess that's it's probably more about protecting your firearm than it is. Whenever about. I went to a range, I always put the guns in the trunk and I put the ammunition in the glove box. And I had them under. I mean, I don't know if I was doing it right or not. That was what my no, father told. That was what my father said to do. So yeah, I just always probably, along with him. In Ohio, you were probably fine. I had to look at the old law. If I remember correctly, the ammunition could not be in the magazine if it was in the same compartment as the firearm. Um, if you had a trunk that wasn't accessible from the interior of the vehicle, you're absolutely fine. 1980 Bonneville. Yeah, you're no fine. Access, yeah, you're fine. <laughs> the old Bonnie. <laughs> yeah. So it is. Now you bring concealed handgun licensing into it. It's really interesting the, the evolution of the law. Uh, car carry was highly restricted when the law first passed and took effect in 05, I believe is when it was. And you had to have the gun holstered on your person, 
or in uh, the lock glove box or console and had to be able to lock. Now, holster on your person was interesting because people would take pocket guns, put it in their pocket. Yeah. People were being charged for that because there was no holster inside their pocket that the gun went into. Completely asinine, right? Completely asinine. That got changed, and that law actually read, I remember, it read like a tongue twister. Uh, the gun had to be uh, uh, holstered on your person or had to be in a box bagger case. To it, the box bagger case had a zipper snapper buckle. To it, the zipper snapper buckle had to be zip snapper buckled. This is the legislative <laughs> nonsense that ha- when you try to over legislate things, this is what happens, right? I yeah. mean, this is like. So, what happened? We passed restaurant carry, and they were so scared that people were going to go out and get drunk and start shooting each other that we took advantage of that. And we just put a big X through it, and it just went away. So, you carry a gun and with a concealed handgun license, a handgun in your car. Just how you would on the street. You know, there's no regulation on it, so to speak. Which makes perfect sense, right? I yeah, mean, absolutely, it, of course. It, it, it just doesn't make well, any sense. And tactically, it should be holstered on your person because if I have to get out of the vehicle, you don't want the gun in the vehicle, right? You need it on your person if you're in a fight. Yeah. So it's it makes perfect sense. Well, I mean, we t- you, you started talking a little bit about uh, the right to carry a concealed handgun. Uh, when did that start in Ohio? Well, it's not a right. It's a privilege. Let me be very clear here. No, good that, point. Yeah. Um, there, stand corrected yeah, there. There was a case on that, Klein versus Lease. We made that very clear where they the uh, the defendant attacked in one of the Supreme Court uh, the concealed carry statute, and he based it on the fact that we have a version of the Second Amendment in the Ohio Constitution. And they said, look, carrying it concealed is not a right. Well, through the dissents, it became very clear that the only way that right exists then is by open carry. That's why we have open carry as a constitutional right in Ohio. Now, when you're talking about open carry, in theory, I can wear a holstered pistol on my belt and walk down the street. Not in theory, in, 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 in reality. In reality. In I reality. Absolutely. It is the law. And if you even go to the Attorney General's Concealed Hearing, Carry Handbook, they agree. It's written right in there. Is there an age on that? There is not. And what's interesting with juveniles and handguns, it's not against the law for a juvenile to possess a handgun. The transfer is what's illegal. So, you know, if they inherited in Tennessee and they moved to Ohio, I don't see anything in the law that would allow them to be prosecuted for that. Um, or they can possess. The transfer could be legal for educational, sporting purposes, things like that. Gotcha. Uh, training, but you you know I can't sell a gun to an eighteen year old, a handgun at least. Um, so, so at eighteen, I cannot buy a, a handgun. Not in Ohio. Not in Ohio. Not in Ohio because it can't be transferred. Gotcha. Yeah. What if I? So what if I? I, I in I, I know the answer already, but I'm going to ask you again. I mean, what if I bought the gun in a state where I were permitted at eighteen years old to have a firearm transferred to me? And then I come into Ohio. It's not a transfer then. I'm just owning I don't, or possessing. I don't see anything in the law that makes it illegal. And I've defended in juvenile criminal court. Years ago, I had a gentleman who was charged with black tar heroin possession, you know, in this rich suburb. And they ended up finding a handgun on him. And they couldn't charge him with anything because it wasn't illegal from the habit. And they didn't know where the transfer came from. Gotcha. Um, so uh, I don't think the recent changes in the laws changed that at all. Even with the gun and drugs? Well, the drugs weren't with him at the time. Okay. There's two separate okay. cases, okay. right? Okay. They were investigating the guy, and this gotcha. came up separately. So, um, yeah. Yeah, when you have guns and drugs, it's just generally bad. Yeah. You're good. Yeah, I mean, you're dealing drugs and you have guns, you're going to get in trouble. It's probably also a federal crime. It's a federal disability if you're using illegal substances and possessing guns. Yes, and you know what I've defended before are police officers. See, police officers are people too, turns out. And some of them like to drink alcohol. Some drink a lot of alcohol. Some like drink a lot of alcohol, off duty or whenever. And the thing is, is that if they're drinking alcohol off duty and they got their, you know, the old proverbial throwdown yeah. in their back pocket still, um, that's a crime. That's right. There's they're laws pos- on it. Yeah, they're possessing a firearm while under the influence of alcohol. And years ago, one of the first cases I worked on was uh, an officer, good, good cop, frankly, but. You know, he'd been drinking, got in an argument with his wife or whatever happened and got pulled over and uh, was drunk with a firearm. 
and he probably did it every day. I mean, I think mm-hmm. there's officers every day. I had a buddy one time. We came down here to watch, you know who Robert Cray is. We came down here to watch a Robert Cray concert. He was playing over at um, Ludlow's. Ludlow's. This is your. Oh, I mean, we're, we're going back. To, we're going, going back, back to the nineties, right? But he brought a friend of mine I went to law school with. Brought a friend of his who was a police officer, and, and we were in this building, five eleven South High. And we were gonna, you know, we were having a couple beers before the show. We had everything planned out. I was living in German Village at the time, so we were just walking. We didn't have to drive, and we thought I'd show him the office and have a couple beers here, and then walk over to Ludlow's. Uh, and he was telling me about his firearm. I said, "What kind of guns do you guys use?" He was telling me about it, and he pulls it right out and shows it to me. I was like, "Well, dude, what are you doing?" He goes, "What?" I said, "You can't carry that thing around here and go into bars and get drunk with it." And your, it was on his ankle, I think. Mm-hmm. said, you can't do that. And he was shocked. He's like, what do you mean I can't do it? I do it all the time. I just said, well, it's a crime, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it like, is, yeah. Just because you do it all the time and haven't been caught doesn't mean it's not a crime. And right. just because you're a police officer doesn't mean it's a crime. Now, they may not they, enforce it. They may give you a break, but it still exists. So every police officer I know who I have uh, either, you know, and I've become friends with a lot of them, where we have dinner and they're having drinks, I'm like, dude, just leave your gun somewhere else. We don't need it here because you're going to get, you can get in trouble. Yeah, I speak at the Ohio Technical Officer Association's conference every year up in Sandusky, Ohio, and I have a section of my uh, CLE that I, or my my seminar rather, that we call Belly Up to the Bar, and I talk about those statutes, and a lot of them don't know about it. It's really interesting. Yeah, and they're now just, in Ohio they changed it to where if you have the license, if you're not consuming alcohol, you can bring it into the bar. Yeah, so that's called what we call restaurant carry. That passed uh, 2013, maybe a little bit before that. I can't exactly remember the year. I remember that because I had met with the restaurant carry associations, uh, our restaurant, restaurant associations, uh, lobbyists to talk about that, that law that was passing. And we proposed to him like, look, you know, get on board with this law. You can always put up your stupid little signs that no guns are allowed, but they wouldn't support it. But, you know, they came out against the smoking ban because they wanted to empower their patrons to be able to make that decision for themselves. But guns are a difference. Again, they treat it second class. But yeah, you can. We actually shot for the stars, thought we'd hit the moon with some sort of 51% of your profits to be food in order to carry into the place. We hit the stars, and you can carry into a straight-up bar that doesn't serve food as long as you're not drinking. And here's the kicker, you can't even be under the influence. So if I'm at home watching the Cleveland Browns lose again, and I'm drunk because it's the Browns, and I decide to watch the rest of the travesty at Applebee's down the road, I put my gun on me and walk into Applebee's. I'm committing a misdemeanor as I'm walking to Applebee's because I'm using a weapon while intoxicated. Same one we just talked about, the police, right. right? Yeah. But then the minute I cross the threshold into the restaurant, simply because it's a restaurant with an alcohol license, I'm committing a third-degree felony, which is five years. That's an F3. So yeah. third, So think about that. It's like you're walking around with a gun. It's a misdemeanor until you cross some threshold. Now you're going to prison for five years. Uh, up to five years, up yeah. Up to five years, yeah. yeah. That's crazy stuff. Man. Well, I think about written. that. You helped a friend of mine out that went down the wrong road. Yeah. You know, the girlfriend dumped him, broke up with him. He goes to the neighbor, his watering hole, mm-hmm. and he walks in with some of his own corn corn whiskey mm-hmm. that he had made yeah. and decides he wants to drink it at the bar. And they said, nah, you can't right. bring your own alcohol right. in here. Right. So they take it from him. A few minutes later, he pulls his gun out and lays it on the counter, says he wants his whiskey back. They take that gun, put it in the safe. Then he's acting up. They tell him to leave. Then he's threatening to drive his truck through the front windows and says he's got more guns at home. Then he wakes up in a hospital bed after he got into an altercation with the officer that tried to arrest him, and he doesn't really remember what happened until he wakes up handcuffed to a hospital bed and uh, gives me a call. 
He needed he needed a phone number. These are good life yeah. decisions. He, yeah. he needed he needed a phone <laughs> number, and he whenever he explained to me what he remembered and thought had happened, I remember I was just like, oh, "Man, you're you're this is new kid." No, nope. this is, this is no good. good. <laughs> and uh, that's a bad. Set you of did. Facts. You you you. I don't know how you did it. You you helped you helped the man out. Yeah, I mean, you helped d- d- the man. <laughs> speaking generically, I think I can safely say he got an awesome result. Unbelievable. Out of that mess. But no, I mean, if you want to evaluate the crimes, I mean, he's carrying concealed. <laughs> What, or he's carrying a concealed gun, right? So CCW. He didn't have a license. He didn't have. He didn't yeah, have. He didn't yeah. have a carry license. Yeah, no carry. It was license. improper handling if he's in the car. If he's in the car, F5, that's improper handling because he had to get F4, there. Four, maybe could be a fourth. Then he's drunk, misdemeanor yeah. one, crosses yeah. the threshold. Now it's an F three. Presuming the new law you're talking about was in, in effect. Yeah. Um, then the big one, stick your gun on the counter and say, "Give me my whiskey." Now we're at robbery. Oh, yeah. Yeah. With a gun spec. Aggravated menacing robbery, uh, attempted assault. Boy, they were offering to give him a ride home. They locked yeah. up his they locked up his whiskey, they locked up his gun, and he just wasn't having it. Felonious assault, maybe. Felonious That's assault. Felonious assault. That's yeah. an F one. Looking at Then there was the threat where he was mandatory. threatening to drive his truck through the because they, yeah. they they kicked him out, locked the doors. The bar wasn't closed, but they locked it. And he was threatening to drive through and then he said he's gonna go home and get more guns. He's on this, a roll. This was that this was the point in time when he was threatening to go get more guns, they were like, he's not call the cops. He's just like fuck it, all in. Like yeah. it was just everything. Let's <laughs> just do like, it. Yeah. He was all in. Yeah. It's like I got dumped, right? <sighs> Life's over anyway. I don't have this girl, so I'm just gonna get drunk and go to prison. Did he go to prison? No. God. Good for him. I, I well, that's even, why I'm bringing you on board this gun crime right. defense, right? You're the best around, so that's why we teamed up. And it's it's really that a lot of this is really about not what the what he could be charged with, what he actually did, but I, in my theory of criminal defense, you've seen it at work, which is really like what brings the person to the problem. What 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 is the background that got this individual in trouble? And then if you start dismantling the problem from that angle, often it gets mitigated in ways that uh, right. that don't make any sense if you just look at it from the big picture. Sure. So you have to work them from within. And I, I think uh, a lot of what I do and a lot of what w- we plan to do with these cases is just that, right, is is sort of step inside the case and work it from a, a very unique perspective. But anyway, that was uh, that was quite a quite an adventure for that young man. I'm glad it worked out for him. But well, that's what I appreciate about how you approach law, because I, I always approach it the same way is very creatively. You know, what's the solution? Let's, how do we practically get there? Yep. How do you practically get to that resolution in the most efficient manner? And I think you and I both think the same way. Yeah, to me, I, my mentor, uh, my late great mentor, Bill Meeks, he he made it very clear to me, this is not about causes. It's about results. Right, exactly right. It's right. about the result. And the result is what matter. And if the cause and the result sort of align in the same path for a while, that's great. Fight the cause. As soon as it doesn't, get rid of that cause and keep going after the result. That's right. And uh, a lot of people in my line of work and yours, uh, they, they lose sight of that because it's, it's, it's too easy to just check boxes and do what you're supposed to do. I find, you know, I've done jury trials that are, are gun cases, and it starts out as a cause, and they usually check their cause right before the jury goes to deliberate. Yeah. You know, when that last offer comes out, you know, and it's a great offer, and I had to have a discussion with them about this offer. Yeah, you know, yeah, so. and uh, you know even the case that we worked on uh, w- that ended up with a great result, right? He found not guilty. I mean, it was still a real scary scenario. Yeah, he pushed with, it all the way. I mean, I, that's more balls than I have. I got to say, he was looking at eleven years, three years mandatory. Yeah, yeah, I I was impressed with the fortitude that that client had and walked out clean. Um, and 
didn't get his gun back. Got his gun back on the courthouse steps. We have a picture of this. So there, there's uh, our client uh, with the bailiff of the court in a small town in Ohio being handed his firearm back. And, and basically the case was a self-defense case. He had had to draw that weapon in a situation in a parking lot. Um, and th- this, you know, backing up, this might have been one of the most telling experiences that I- I've had with with self-defense mm-hmm. and how that sort of cross paths with your uh, your these handgun licenses and people carrying them in a concealed way. And I just think people lose sight of what might happen mm-hmm. when you actually have that gun right. and what, what you may have to do and what are you willing to do. And if it doesn't work out, uh, we had another guy, a prosecutor, um, Mike Hughes was in here. Oh, yeah. And he talked to us about this, and he teaches the the firearms yeah. classes. And it was the same thing. It's right. I mean, I don't think our client in that case ever thought when he was at that establishment in that parking lot that day uh, after church would have to pull that gun. Right. And he certainly didn't think that he's going to be on trial for his life. And uh, that's what happened. Yeah, we we teach a seminar. I'll be teaching it in Pittsburgh this year at the United States Concealed Carry Association's conference called When Not to Pull a Firearm. Because, you know, they take these classes. They teach you when you can use deadly force self-defense. But no one really teaches you when not to pull the firearm. Yeah. You know, I've defended most of the cases I defend with concealed carry hoarders is aggravated menacing because they pulled the gun when they should not pull that gun. Uh, and so I started teaching that portion of the class in kind of a reverse order. This is when you should not pull the damn gun, right? What a great way to what a great way to yeah. get at it. And there's all kinds of cases. You, there was a case in Columbus a number of years ago. I can't remember the name of it, but a gentleman in Columbus looks out his window. Somebody's breaking into his car. He goes out and kills the guy. Yeah. You can't do that, right? It's you can't <laughs> defend property with deadly force. You just can't do that. And most people don't understand that, and they act out of emotion. Right. Yeah. Instead of logic and tactical training, because they're, they're not well trained. Let's just be honest. The, the the course that they have to take, which is usually a basic NRA course, in my opinion, is not sufficient training. Uh, they should continue to train just like you should continue to drive a car when you get your license. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's good training, but it's it's in and of itself. I think it's it, it lacks additional expertise that is needed. Well, I was talking to a buddy of mine just recently, and he recently got his license to carry a concealed gun. And. I didn't shoot guns my whole life, but I've now, you know, the last 10 decade or so, I've, I've been very active either shooting for sport or hunting or doing whatever, being around firearms. Uh, I do I do not currently have a license to carry a concealed handgun. And um, he was talking about how he got his. And I was just thinking to myself, I've never seen this guy shoot a gun my entire life, right? But he's now he's carrying one. There's instructors I've heard that will go to a bar. And teach the class. You know what I mean? Part of the class. The, like the, 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 the yeah. you know what I mean? Not the whole class. And because I remember seeing sign-up sheets before at, at different pubs that I'd go to. Mm-hmm. And this is when they, when they first came out and there's all kinds of different instructors. You can go to somebody's home. This guy, you know, it only takes you four hours. You know, if you go take that other class, it's going to take you three days. Right. Which I always thought maybe the three-day program might be the better program. Right. Well, and, are you going to be overtrained? Well, you know, and, and like, as, as a motorcycle enthusiast, I have. What a great I, parallel. Really. I, I ride a lot of bikes. And I remember I was riding with a group once and I went up to a buddy of mine. I said, hey, man, your T-shirt's flapping up. I was like, I can see your gun. He's like, it's cool, man. I got a license. I was like, no, man. Is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. This is what I thought. I was like, if you have it concealed, don't you have to keep it concealed? Like if you're riding down the road, his shirt flies up. And now you're behind a motorcyclist and you see that he's got a gun in his waistband. It's somewhat nuanced because the motorcycle is considered a motor vehicle. So open carry is generally not regulated in Ohio, right? Except when you get into a car or a motor vehicle. Yeah. So because it's a motor vehicle, the question becomes, is it violation 
of the law within the motor vehicle. But if you have, does he have a concealed hand license? Yes. So it doesn't matter. He could doesn't do it. Matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Now, I've, I've ridden, go to Swappers meet. I don't know if you've ever been out to Johnstown Swappers. It's quite an event. But I've pulled up there before where I had, I had an AK on the on my, strapped on my back, and I rode up on my bike. I didn't know I might trade it. I might sell it. It's a gun show. Was it unloaded? It was unloaded. And now, I mean, just this was my own end. I had the zip tie in the lock there. Yeah, so pr- I'd have, again, I'd want to look. These are so now, once again, I, I just I put, the, I put the zip tie in there just well, because whenever you walk into Swappers, well, they, the, they have a sign up that if you bring a gun in, it has to be well, it's, it's good you locked did because, or zip tie. Because the action, I think, would at least have to be locked open if you're carrying it that way yeah. in the motor vehicle, which the zip tie would have locked had it open. Had it open, ran it through, right. kept it open. And how else do you carry it? On a motorcycle, right? It's oh, like, right. You know, it's I mean, not, it's not, not a real my life. Brother, good my brother is ridden with his on his front tube. Yeah. He has it strapped on the, his front the, tube right now. Now, so I don't, I have found that law does give motorcyclists a little bit of lenient. It's interesting. Uh, I did a YouTube video, and we have a, a very uh, uh, healthy YouTube channel. You guys can look us up there. But so uh, tell us what it is, real quick. Was just I think you go to YouTube, just type in munitions group, it'll come up. Gotcha. Munitions law group. But lots uh, of followers and like thirty five thousand subscribers, and the more yeah. we can get, the better. But we always answer questions, and I did one on on carrying on motorcycles, and I got it wrong, and someone called me out on it, and I had to take it down. You know, I, I enjoy getting that kind of feedback because I'm not always right. I try to be always right, but I'm still sure. human. And I double checked it, admitted I was wrong, took it down, and fixed it. Yeah. Um, but it is that nuance that even someone like me that deals with this stuff every day, if I don't triple check things, it, it can be the wrong analysis. So you got to you got to make sure you're triple checking things. Yeah. People think just because I'm a lawyer, I know the answers to all this stuff, and all I know is the issues. So somebody's like, "Are we cool?" Do I was hunting one time, and here I am in the back of a pickup truck going from one spot to another, and everybody's just sitting there holding their shotguns, and I unloaded mine. But I would venture guess that not everybody did. And uh, it's sort of like it's never going to be enforced, so nobody really ever does anything. Right. And we're just cruising around these back roads. But I was just looking around thinking, boy, this is a criminal defense disaster. <laughs> now, I, had, I have ridden with, with a holster with a handgun that was loaded, that was out. Thinking, See, that's a problem. Now, that's now, not, now what I'm hearing now, that that, that could have been a problem. You bet. It's open, but you're in a motor vehicle. I have to look at the law. I don't think it's considered open carry because you're in the, the car is treated like a motorcycle. If it's a motor vehicle, it's a motor vehicle, and there's specific laws on how to transport firearms in a motor vehicle. Yeah. So you got these this little crossing of yeah. – I had this come up one time. It was a guy who was at a protest. This is years. We're back in the probably the 90s. It was before there was any licenses to carry a concealed handgun, and he was – uh, he was a, he was, I think he was a church rally or he was out. There was a, there was a rally for something that he didn't agree with. So he was out there walking around open carrying, got into his car, put the gun up on the dashboard in what we argued later was plain sight. And, um, he, the police came up and charged him as soon as he did it. And, uh, you know, our position was, wait a minute, this was still open carry. The, law position or the the police position was no now he's in the car now he's in the car it's improper handling and uh i can't remember how it all shook out we resolved it somehow but it was uh it was where those two paths crossed well open carry is interesting because it's generally unregulated but it's regulated in a few places prison grounds cars are kind of the, the big two i mean we have more uh robust open carry laws in texas uh i mean open carry is generally unregulated in the state of ohio i can put a loaded ar-15 on my back and walk down high street perfectly constitutionally legal to do that I don't think it's tactically appropriate, but you can do right. it. You know, it's it's it should be a right, um, but that's that's the way the laws work. But they do get regulated in certain areas that you enter into. 
And it's not like concealed carry where you have a statute that talks about all the concealed carry regulations, right? There's little odds and ends throughout the revised code that talk about where you cannot have deadly weapons. Yep. And uh, I want to I jump back to this, Jared. You said something. When you first get a motorcycle, what is it? what do you have to do to get a license? Well, you have to go get your temporary permit. You have to take a written. Yeah. And then uh, then once you get that, you have to schedule your driven test. Yeah. You go do a driven test. And you that's do a driven that. test. And then you have to keep it updated. If you let it expire, yeah. then it goes back to you have to get your temp. Then you have to get your – which so the majority of motorcyclists out there, I, and this I, has always blown my mind. They don't get their endorsement. Mm. I mean, I know guys really? that have been riding for 20 years. Really? And sometimes they'll go and they'll go take the written, and I'm like this. Uh, it, it, it astounds me because I've gone with on rides with people before and uh, asked and found out they didn't have their endorsement. And I've been like, you know, we're going to New York. I was like, so different. Like, like I've got a vertical plate. Yeah. Some places you're not allowed a vertical plate. Hmm. Some places you're not, you know I mean? There's different things. And they can pull you over. Maybe they'll give you a ticket. Maybe they'll just harass you. But when I was down in Daytona Beach, Florida for bike week, I always get a ticket because I have ape hangers. And they've got these laws. And uh, I got pulled over, had been there. I don't know. We checked in the hotel room. We're going to New Smyrna. I get pulled over. He pulled you over for the apes. Gives me a $150 ticket. And the first time it happened, he told me, he's like, go to Kinko's, get laminated, pin it to your back. And that way they won't give you another ticket. They see, they see <laughs> that you've already been issued a ticket for it. So the first thing you do is go out sober if you got ape hangers and get your ticket. The very next morning, I pull out of the, to go to where we had our trailer parked. And I'm running across the road and I get pulled over by Daytona. And they're like, he comes up to me. He's like, I pulled you over for your apes. I was like, yeah, I got a ticket. And I show him my ticket. And he's like, oh, they gave you a ticket at New Smyrna? And, he, and then his partner's there. They're running my plates. And he's like this. He's got an endorsement. He's got endorsement. Hmm. And they're like, all right. They're like, yep, you already got your ticket. We wouldn't have gave you one anyhow. But that was an excuse for them to check sure. to see if I had an endorsement. Because yeah. if you don't have an endorsement and you're out of state, they will impound your bike. Oh, geez. They're going to take it and they're going to haul it away. And I would go <laughs> on these these multi-state trips with these guys. And I'm like, aren't you worried that for whatever reason you break down or something mm. that 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 they could take I didn't know that. they could take your bike from you? I rode for many years and I, I gave it up. But uh, Did you I, get your endorsement? Oh, yeah, of course. I took, right. the, I took the Harley class and got oh, it Oh, wait, yeah. that's it. There's multiple places you can yeah. go, and when you're done, my wife took the class, and she got it then. Yeah. I I just, you know, took the test and then went took the class, but I went to Kentucky. I moved to Kentucky once, and uh, they didn't give me my endorsement, and I moved back to Ohio because they don't transfer these endorsements. Hmm. Some states, you have to take their test. And I'd moved back, so then I had to take a test again here. Well, there's a couple things that are important. I mean, one is... And it's similar. So if you've got a firearm that you're going and you've got a you've got a license to carry it in Ohio, what does that do in other states? How does that work? In other states, it depends if we have reciprocity with them. Uh, the simple rule of thumb is this. If we're reciprocal with that state, and Ohio recognizes all other states, every state now, as of a couple years ago. So if, so if you've got a license in whatever state and you come to Ohio, yep. they're going to say, you're cool, you've got right. a license over there. Exactly. But not all states recognize our license. Uh, but the states that do, I think there's somewhere around 38 of them. Um, the rule is simple. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. We have to follow their laws. So everything I teach my students, I say just throw it out the window, right? Concealed carry laws, self-defense laws, it goes right out the window. If you're in Virginia, you're following Virginia law. Yep. That's like the helmet law. Right, exactly. Once you cross the state line, you better put your helmet on or you're going to get a ticket. Yeah. And the other point I wanted to make about motorcycles is this, sort of swinging back to this training notion. It's like I had a buddy. I, I don't ride motorcycles. I, I, I'm not, just not for me. 
but uh, a buddy one time sort of gave me the basic training that you would get at a when I see him up at Pharaohs there doing whatever they're doing. He, he went because he used to teach that, and he gave me the basic class, and he said, "All right," and I and I looked at him. I was like, "Now I can ride a motorcycle," and he says, "Well, that's what they train you." And I remember thinking to myself, "Well, this is." woefully inadequate if you've never ridden a motorcycle before and you go just go take that class and you're going to go you think you're good at it it's like no there's, there's nothing worse than a 40 year old man that decides he wants to buy a motorbike that's never had one i've never been th- those are the guys that scare me the most yeah you know whenever you talk to him it's like I, you know i had a dirt bike i was six years old i've, I've been riding motorbikes right. so for me that is a great thing because what comes into me is is the repetition and sure. the, and and yeah. writing and the it's experience. Second nature. It's, it's, it's why just, I gave it you up. You just do stuff. Yeah. I don't have to think about it. Now, as a kid, yeah. I had to think about it, and I wrecked a number of times, which which solved the problem. Right. Yeah. With once, like you said too, you should retrain yourself. If yeah. you get the you know if you get your license, you should because you, I mean how many yeah. times I mean unless you're going out practicing, mm-hmm. you 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 need to re rebrush on that. You you went through the course two years ago, and and now right. Well, and I look at it this way. It's like some guy's walking around with a gun ready to use it in theory because he's got it in his pocket and uh, at the, at something can happen anytime. So he's going to pull this gun or she's going to pull the gun and uh, they're in a firefight and ask any police officer how many firefights they've been in. They're going to tell you probably none, right? Most of them have not right. been in that it's situation, yeah. now, but they still get tons of tactical training on how to deal with that. They try, they go through simulated training. Mm, they do some all of them get tons, not all well, of them. Not all of them. <laughs> some of them shoot once a year. Compared to me, yeah, they have been trained on it, right? Yeah. Or they, so you're right. Some of them not so, not as much as others. Um, and then if imagine the stress of a situation. I remember seeing a video as a shootout with a couple of troopers. I think it was Ohio even. You know, they're, they're 10 feet away from each other, five feet away from each other. Nobody got hit, right? Everybody missed, right? So that adrenaline starts rushing. Sure. And uh, if you think you can do it just because you took the class, I would urge you to reconsider right. that. And uh, <clears throat> I, I guess the only thing I have similar is I started hunting, you know, a decade ago or, or since childhood anyway. But I uh, really started hunting a decade ago. And the first time I encountered a deer in the woods, it was like, <laughs> it was like Barney yeah, Fife, I'm you sure, know? Yeah, yeah. And it was just, a, you know, it was just yeah. a hunting scenario with me. Nobody's shooting back. So... Anyway, I think people often underestimate what is going on. And then from a criminal defense standpoint, the other thing I get back to the alcohol is people get this. I, I sense people get a license sometimes just because they can. And then they, after work, they just go, they go out, they have a couple of beers, yeah. they're driving home. Now a DUI has turned into a felony. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because every time I talk about alcohol and I'm a certified instructor, I'm, I have all kinds of certifications that teach this stuff. And. People will push me on this issue. Alcohol and guns just don't mix, period. Now, legally, I can just, like, drive a car with alcohol in my system. I can have a gun with alcohol in my system unless I'm in a restaurant uh, with a concealed carry license. But there's nothing against the law unless I am under the influence or intoxicated, right? So they have to prove that. Um, but I always get pushback. Well, what if after work, you know, the, the crew's going to the bar? Well, don't go. Don't go. Don't drink alcohol. Don't drink take your water. gun. Right. Right. Don't go. Don't bring your gun. Don't carry it if there's a possibility. There's no reason. But I did just text a good prosecutor friend of mine, a mutual friend of ours, actually. He confirmed that you cannot carry a loaded firearm on a motorcycle if you don't have a concealed handgun license because it is considered a motor vehicle. So Interesting. And if it's a long gun, then in theory, then you can't do it at all. Um, you can't have it loaded, no. Yeah. I mean, you have to keep it unloaded with the action locked open. Uh, at least at minimum that, I have to double check the statute. You could, I think, have it. You just have to carry it the right way. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah. 
No, there's there's all sorts of issues with alcohol that I've seen that uh, people will defend the booze to the grave. I've seen it time and time again. Yeah. It's like you think, wait a minute, I, I I can't do this. I can't. Well, this is it's stupid. I should be able. It's but it, it's so simple. Just don't drink. It's like they're God. It's right? crazy. I stopped drinking two months ago. You know. And it's it's just once you get beyond that initial Did giving you really it up. Know, congratulations, yeah. good for yeah, you. Yeah, no no particular reason. I just wanted to give it up for health reasons. But uh, uh, it's not hard to give it up. It, for some people, it really is. You know, it, it's it's you're right. They will defend it above everything else. People will go crazy with it. I, I'm now over three years without booze, and uh, I don't miss any of it. Um, but I do, I do notice that I, I it, it focuses you on uh, on others who defend it right? right to to almost like i said almost to the death i mean they this don't take their beer or don't take their alcohol but uh the best thing to do i've seen with alcohol and guns is just separate them permanently right there's just really no good reason to have either together um all right let's let's hit a couple questions that we have yeah we had a couple questions come in these are always kind of fun let's see what we got here all right so the first one says is, is it legal and this is really a question for both you and i steve uh is it legal to tell people you are carrying uh, a firearm to get them to back off. So we get this a lot. Brandishing a firearm, get away from me, I have a gun. And this kind of comes in that case that we had in, sure. in a lot of ways. And again, when not to pull a firearm, is it aggravated medicine? Is it felonious, felonious assault? Because if I knowingly call someone to fear for their life, I've essentially assaulted them or menaced yeah. them. Yeah. And that can be a crime. So the question becomes, and it always gets to this, the heart of it, is pulling a gun or announcing a gun in and of itself, an act of deadly force self-defense that needs to be justified at that standard. And I go round and round with attorneys on this. And I came to the conclusion from a conservative standpoint that you have to consider it as such. So if you come up to me and we get into a verbal altercation and I pull a gun on you without the intent to shoot it, to me that's deadly force because if it's not, it's created in your mind a deadly threat whereby you could pull a gun and shoot me because now I've threatened your life. Well, you've escalated the problem, right? right. Now, now you've escalated. Now it's no longer just a, a verbal fight. It's not even It's not even a fist fight. Now it's a gunfight. Yeah, so, it's got to be considered deadly force. Otherwise, you find yourself in this circular argument. And if it's not deadly force, then I can just end a non-deadly encounter with a deadly instrument. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yep. Um, no, it's, uh, I've never had a crime charged like that, but I agree with you. I think it, I think it is a show and there's case law to support it that you pull a gun. That's, that's a show of deadly force. Yeah. And, uh, it has to have some justification now, just because you don't pull the trigger or just because it doesn't go off, it doesn't change that, but it does make it a lot less likely that you're going to get charged with crimes as a result of it. So, I, I think it's really going to come down to the judge because what's the jury instruction? Is it deadly force self-defense or just non-deadly force self-defense as far as the instruction? I had a client in Clintonville who's a 55-year-old uh, male, African-American, who did yard work, uh, like landscaping, drove a truck with a little trailer on the back, was coming up the high street to make a right-hand turn, and there was this bicyclist. You know Clintonville. Yeah. A lot of men in tights on bikes, right? Yeah. And so they got in some sort of road rage incident and the bicyclist pedals up next to my guy. He's driving like an F-150 and starts yelling and pointing. And the guy grabs his gun and kind of holds it like this, like against his chest. And he's like, and his argument was, I was scared. I'm an old man. I'm like, you're 55 years old. You're not that old. And he did three days in jail for that. Yeah. So if we want the trial, though, he wanted to argue self-defense. Is this standard deadly force or non-deadly force? Because he, he implemented a deadly instrument. Well, either way. Uh, all those self-defense rules will have to come into play. It's like who started yeah. it, who didn't start it, what was reasonable, what was not reasonable. Right. Uh, did he have a duty to retreat? I mean, there's all sorts of other things that just because you can doesn't mean it's still going to succeed. And I would say, I mean, what do you teach people? I've heard this a thousand times. What do you teach people about 
just that. If you pull right. your gun, what's your intent? My dad always taught me, if you ever pull a gun on use a it. human being, use it. You're using it. You're, right. that, the, Otherwise, you shouldn't pull it. That was exactly, I mean, this that, and that was told to me at probably about eight right. years old. Is yeah. that still what you train people well, on? I train that... people that because I say, if you're pulling that gun, you better be damn sure you have the legal authority to use it. And that means you're going to use it because it should be the absolute last option. And this type of situation I just mentioned um, you know, because it, it, he used a deadly weapon, I think in order to use deadly force, you have to, again, be in fear of your life. And I don't think he could argue that. Right. So he yeah. couldn't. He, what are you going to do with that? Um, and you can't say it's non deadly force because if it's non deadly force, you know, it's not reciprocal. Right. It's not. You, you can only use the same force in non deadly encounters, right. fist against fist, so on and so forth. And and this notion that uh, you're just brandishing it and somehow that's going to that's going to help the problem it probably never does or or it doesn't I'm going to say never it probably as much as it does it probably doesn't yeah. and uh, the other the other problem the other thing I tell people is this I mean this is even people who I've been around that um, if I if there was a firearm out or something and not that I go around just playing with guns all the time but there's been times I've been either cleaning something or doing something and I'll, I'll put the gun on the table and I'll say, guess what? That gun is not going to go bang. It is never going to, it's not going to shoot anybody or anything. First of all, it's not loaded. And I know that I've right. triple checked it. Secondly, it's sitting on the table. Even if it were loaded, unless I exert some force on it, nothing's going to happen. And what I tell people in this scenario, the question we had is, if you don't pull that gun, it will never go off. It, you're not going to shoot anybody. So if you think you're just going to pull it and brandish it and scare somebody, now you have increased exponentially right. the odds of that firearm shooting somebody. I, my, my opinion is, is thus, that, that even announcing that I have a firearm, I have got to be literally in fear of my life. Yeah. And then it, it's kind of uh, like stages, right? I'm going to stop, get away, I have a gun. If you come any closer, I'm going to shoot you. But at that moment, I'm in fear of my life. He comes closer, then the gun's out. He comes closer, and then he's dead, right? right? And that's why training is so very important because this is a very gray area of the law, as you know, Steve. It's just yep. gray. And each judge is going to allow the, the jury instructions to be different, I think. It's just very and different. Even if you get the jury instructions, you're going to get 10 jur or 12 jurors, and 10 of them will yeah. think one and two another. I mean, you just don't you, you just don't know. And which brings me to my next question. It's just sort of a – it's not like TV, right, where I'm just going to shoot somebody in the leg. It's non-deadly force. <laughs> oh, God. You know, I'll just, I'll just drop him, and that'll save me, right? Then I don't have to do it. It's like, Well, then he's not in fear of his life because if I'm a prosecutor, why don't you okay. shoot him really, well, where it counts? Why'd you shoot him late? Because you weren't really in fear of your life, yeah. were you? Yeah. Right? And then also we're going to charge you with discharging the fireman in city limits, by the way. Yeah, your life just got really crappy. Yeah, it right? got really difficult. You made the job difficult for us. I think your point's the best one. It's like if you're going to even announce that you have a gun, you should have the you should feel then that you have the authority to use it, which means— you have not started the fight. I agree. You have not. You don't have any duties to retreat. Uh, you're in fear for your life, which which would now, I guess, imply that you don't have a duty to retreat. Right. But um, you've got all these things in your favor, and then you can use the gun. And what happens after that, at least you're justified in it. Um, right. Or at least more likely justified. And they in can't it. treat you with assault now, like a felonious assault, because if I just walk down the street and you're just passing by me, you don't even look at me, and I tell you I have a gun in a threatening manner or in an aggressive manner, like, hey, I got a gun, that's a crime. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's theoretically a crime. So, uh, you know, that's an extreme example. But even in a non-deadly encounter, maybe we're arguing over a girl. It's the same situation. Yep. I would argue at least. No, right? I would, too. So it's like these are these are interesting, logical exercises where you have to sort of take it all the way to the extreme. It's like if you take it to yeah. the most extreme, if I just announce that I have a gun, what what then yeah. am I allowed to do that? Well, I hope the listeners get anything out of this discussion is that this you need somebody who understands this law. It, it, yeah. it's, it's very difficult. It's very complicated. It's not so as easy as was I justified. Now, as you know, jury trials are really just a popularity contest, and they're going to say, what would I have done? 
yeah. at the end of the day. That's more than likely what's going to happen. Which is the case we had. Derek, I mean, you guys, I mean, there was a lot of nuance to that because there was a vehicle involved. There was um, there was a firearm involved. The firearm did not discharge. There was a lot of moving parts to it. Innocent and, third party. Innocent third party. So our client was sort of stepping into the shoes of a third party to defend a third party. Um, so there was a lot of self-defense law that had to be researched. And then once we had it all figured out, I just looked at you and said, all right, now I don't care about that anymore. You yeah, know, that's right. Like, and they worked, you know, and I learned a lot from you on, on, from that aspect, from the strategy aspect. Yeah. You can't go through, it's a, it's not a logical game to a jury. It is a very dynamic process and we have to figure out what's going to, uh, sway the case our way. But unless you know all this other stuff, you, right. you're not allowed to disregard it until you right. know it cold. Yeah. Then you can make rational decisions. So, all right. Next up in the... Uh, this is a common question I get. I'll read the whole thing. It's it's only a few sentences. Uh, I just lost there one second. Here we go. Okay. So what it says is I work in a gas station in Ohio. He's been robbed. He or she has been robbed three times. Uh, they have a company handbook that states they have to comply with their weapons policy, but doesn't state what it is. Well, I'm guessing they have a policy, but he's he, he or she's yeah. claiming that they've never seen it. And that there is not, they don't have, the place doesn't have a no gun sign anywhere in the building. So customers can carry, but what about employees? We're talking specifically about the law. What charges can be brought if I defend myself with a gun during a robbery? So this really gets into an employment law question. I get it quite often. Just because your employer does not have a gun sign at the door doesn't mean they can't fire you, A, right? Because it's an at-will state. In Ohio, we can sure. fire people for anything as long as we're not discriminating. And Second Amendment owner or uh, exercisers, I guess, are not a protected class in the state of Ohio. So if I employ you, Steve, at my office, and I allow my customers to have guns, but I find you have a gun, I can fire you, right? There's nothing you can do about it yep. unless there's a contract that says otherwise. Um, so if the gentleman were to defend himself there, I don't think he's committed a crime at all because there's no gun sign on the door. There's no criminal activation of the revised code. I, I yeah, don't presuming see Presuming everything else is, is right, true. Yeah. Presuming he had the, he had the uh, legal authority to defend himself with a gun. In other right. words, he was in fear for his life or serious bodily harm, and uh, he otherwise did everything right. But I agree with you. I think that's yeah. right. And I think people often confuse. We get this question at our table all the time, too. It's like, uh, wait a minute, that's free speech. And I'm like, no, it's not because it's not the government acting. You right. Have, you have to have government right. action <laughs> yeah. to abridge a right unless like, you, you reference something called a suspect class or protected class. Right. Then you start getting into some nuance of employment law where you're not allowed to discriminate on the personal side or the private side. But generally, I can't violate your constitutional rights. Right. I can't do it. Um, it has to be some agent or actor on behalf of the government. And then you can start talking about a constitutional problem. So, Yeah, I, I love the news articles when people are, are saying, you know, Facebook doesn't uh, follow the Constitution or Google doesn't. I'm like, it's right. a private Freeze. entity. Yeah, there's a private entity, right? And they can do whatever they want. Right. You know? Oh, exactly. <laughs> and and if you don't, here's the good news. You don't have to be on Facebook. Yeah. You can delete your yeah. Facebook account if yeah. you don't like it. Or homeowners associations have uh, policies against uh, having the American flag flying. Well, it's a private institution. They can do what they want. Yeah. Yeah, they can do it. Now, Now that's an interesting, but that is an interesting area of law because you know what happened. You remember all the case law where uh, the homeowners, and so, homeowners associations will say, you can only build a white fence. Somebody builds a purple fence. How do they enforce it? Well, they go to court and they try to force enforce it. And uh, it's really just, it gets into this weird area of the law where you're using the government to enforce a private thing. Yeah. And then it all started to intersect with uh, some Jim Crow stuff mm -hmm. where they were trying to keep certain, or they're trying to keep black folks out of the neighborhood, or it was used in a very racist way. And then they found 
uh, government action if it were enforcing that. They found government action to enforce a racist right. homeowners <clears throat> thing. So it would be interesting if you had a homeowners association doing something to abridge your rights, whether for the government, whether that constitutes government action, because when what you're doing is asking the government for something called specific performance. You're not asking the, you're not asking for damages. You're 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 basically asking the government to enforce somebody to do something that mm-hmm. they privately agreed to do. But uh, no, I generally I think you're right. It's like if you don't have, if if I just fire you because you have a gun and I don't like guns, like sorry Charlie, yeah, go get a job somewhere else. You brought up an interesting point. I had a really interesting call from a client, a dealer client of mine uh, who runs a gun store, and. Uh, he says, you know, under the Gun Control Act, Derek, we don't have to sell guns to people. And that's true, right? If you come in and you smell like alcohol, I don't have to sell you a gun. You know, but it's illegal to discriminate based on race, uh, ethnicity, creed, religion, and all these sorts of stuff. Now, in Columbus, Ohio, we have a large Asian popula- population. So my client wants to instill a policy that, you know, we just don't rent guns out or sell guns to people who are not U.S. citizens. Now, under the Gun Control Act, if you're a resident alien here on an immigrant visa, you can possess guns. So I said that policy... In a vacuum is fine, but what it's going to look like, right? People who can't own guns and buy guns are going to usually be Asian in this certain neighborhood. So it, the effect will look like it's almost racist. Yeah. Um, so I said, here's the policy. If you're not a U.S. citizen, no guns until, you know, the owner speaks to counsel. So you're not saying no. You're saying we got to go talk to the lawyer. Yeah. Right. So that's what I came up with because I didn't want it to appear racist. But you have these intersections of these different sure. types of laws with guns and you're trying to protect society in public by monitoring who you sell guns to, but at the same time, you don't want to get sued. It's like gerrymandering for guns. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. A large amount of gun stores are always in up, upper-class neighborhoods. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some of them are. You know. I know they yeah. are. There's really I've nice ones to. around Columbus. We have a few of them that are really high-end. It has become more, I've seen more and more gun stores opening up. What's it take to open up a gun store? What do I have to do? Well, you know, well it depends on what you want to do, but at a minimum, uh, you just have to apply for a license if you wanted to do it as a sole proprietor. The biggest hurdle for people they don't think about is zoning laws. Zoning laws will be a death knell to an FFL application being granted right away because that's the first thing ATF does is contact the zoning board. So there's a, like a, the zoning. Or, now, how does it, let's get into the, the clouds here a little bit. What if I were... If the zoning board does, does the do, do governments ever get in trouble by passing zoning regulations that would preclude all firearm sales in a particular area? Yeah, I think I, I can't cite any cases or statistics off the top of my head, but yeah, it's like anything else. I think you know cities have tried to do that with uh, strip clubs and things like that, so they're zoned out to the industrial areas. Yeah, um, so they can be zoned out to certain areas of town. But I don't think they can be completely excommunicated from town. I mean, D.C., I think, got sued after the big D.C. versus Heller case because there was like one FFL in the city. Yeah. Right. And the city made it so onerous, gun stores couldn't open. And it was an FFL that uh, was like a movie production company. Right. So people would go out to Alexandria, buy a gun and have it transferred to the FFL. And this guy was just being inundated and couldn't handle it all. So it's a de facto ban on guns now. You can't own a gun in D.C. because you can't transfer one into the city. Because you can't get it, right? Right. That's yeah. the that's the sneaky stuff. And it works both ways, right? People right. Do it. People have been doing that crap for, for years and years and years. What if I wanted to just have my own FFL? Because when I saw, frankly, I considered this. When I saw that there's these proposals for the private transfers to mm-hmm. acquire FFL, I was like, well, screw it. I'll just get an FFL. What does it take? Yeah, it's not too – well, again, it, you know, if you do it right, you, you hire a firm like us. But if you do it on your own – Without attorney's help, you're just going to have to fill out basically an application um, and just submit a bunch of information to the government and pay a fee. And that's it. And then you have to run it properly. 
they're going to come to you. ATF's going to do an, an immediate meeting, and they're going to uh, say, here's a white book that's about, you know, two inches thick, and um, they're going to have you sign a piece of paper that says you understand that you're responsible for everything in that book. Right. right? So, and, and you've read it and right? memorized it, right? Yeah. And the reason they have you sign that is because if you ever, if your books are ever inaccurate or you're missing a gun, they're going to point to that and say, you acknowledge that you knew everything in that book, therefore we're revoking your license. And understand the books you keep and the records you keep are not yours. They're the government's. You're a licensee of the government, maintaining that for the government. Yep. Yeah, and that's how it works. Are the books now done online? Is that stuff uh, now up in the clouds or is that? I don't uh, know if it's in the cloud. You have to get variances from the ATF. Um, I do know there's on there, there's uh, um, there's computer programs that they can use now to do yeah. the, what we call the A&D records, the acquisition and disposition. Gun comes in. We record it on the left side as an acquisition. It's sold. We record it on the right side as a disposition so they can trace where all the guns are at because we don't have a central registry in this country. Thank God. Um, if they find a gun by a dead body, they're going to look at the make model serial number. Say it's a Glock 19, they're going to call Glock down in Smyrna, Georgia. Say, Mr. Glock, Gaston Glock, look at your books. Tell us who you sold it to. They're going to say, oh, we sold that up to Ohio AccuSport. They're going to call AccuSport. Say, who'd you sell it to? Vance's. They're going to call Vance's. Who'd you sell it to? Steve Palmer. Now they're going to come looking for Steve. And that's how they do what we call crime trace. Gotcha. Yeah, that's why the books are so important. Um, all right, what else we got? What about antique firearms and sales? Is oh. there different laws and, and, and transfers of that? So, yes, uh, antiques and black powder are interesting uh, segment of firearms, but you can get something called a C&R license, which is a type of FFL, not as highly regulated, but you can actually have guns mailed to your house because you're technically an FFL, but it's only certain types that are on the C&R list, curios and relics. Now, I can't remember what year it is, something in the 1800s, 1870 or something. If it was a fire made before, that's not considered a firearm. So people like felons can own certain really historic firearms or strict black powder guns felons can own under federal law, meaning they can't convert to cartridge loads. So there's a whole another body of law that talks about these weird, nuanced, kind of primitive weapons, if you will. And there is so much. When I've got into a, a couple different federal uh, sort of unlawful manufacturing or even unlawful gunsmithing cases. It's like there can be a hunk of metal there, and if it's just got the right markings on it, now that qualifies as a firearm because it's been registered yeah. and booked. Um, but it just looks like a hunk of metal, or it, it looks like something that couldn't shoot, yet the government can still think that's a firearm. I, I guess this is my point. What I, the, My experience dealing with this on the criminal defense side is – there's a lot to know. There's a ton. I mean, we haven't even touched on the National Firearms Act. You want to get really complicated, start talking about suppressors. Yeah. Let's talk about machine guns and short barrel rifles and the measurements they have to measure. There was a case up in Cleveland that went to trial, and thank God the guy won. The guy had what's called an AR pistol, which is an AR-15, but it doesn't have a stock. It's a buffer tube, so it's a big tube that houses the spring contraption, the, the spring buffer assembly, but it's a handgun. It's technically, it's built as a handgun. It's sold as a handgun, um, but it's short. So, but it's not a rifle, right? But then he put a cane tip, a literal tip of a cane, rubber cane tip on the back of that buffer tube. And basically he strapped the string around it to keep it on. The reason people do that is so if that bolt ever locks up, they can pound it on the ground and unlock, unfreeze that bolt. Um, ATF found it and said, oh, you've created a stock with that rubber tip. We're going to prosecute you for ten, up to 10 years in federal prison. And one of our experts actually wow. testified Whoa. in that case and they beat the case. But that's the shit we deal with, with with the federal government. It's crazy. It's absolutely insane. I mean, a gas pipe, a two-by-four rubber band, and a nail, you got a shotgun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what's the law on that? I mean, can I build my own shotgun? You can build your own your own firearms. You cannot build your own short-barreled shotgun. You can build your own short-barreled shotgun, short-barreled rifles, but you have to register with the NFA. Now, if I want to build my own regular <clears throat> AR-15 that's full length, you know, over 16-inch uh, barrel, over 26 or 8 inches in length, I can't remember the exact number, 
that's fine. I can do that, right? It's I can get a, a lathe. I can turn a barrel. I can build it. I don't even have to necessarily serialize it unless I'm doing it for business purposes. That's where you get in, into problems. If you're doing it for business purposes, it's a crime. And black powder, you know, I, I like I said, I'm a hunter, and a lot of times you see these kits for sale. I can build my own black powder gun or my own uh, Hawken or whatever it would be. Is that no, no problems with that? Because it's, it's not a powder. firearm under federal law unless it's convertible to cartridge. Now, under state law, it is considered a firearm. Um, but last I checked, Ohio doesn't really control that either. Um, you cannot obliterate a serial number that's already on a firearm. That is a crime. Gotcha. One unknown law in Ohio I find really interesting uh, is that if you lose or misplace a firearm, you have to forthwith notify local law enforcement. Most people don't know that. Hmm. I'm trying to think if I've ever lost a gun. Not that I know. Well, of. you lose it. You're, it's gone. It's <laughs> right. gone. Right. I'm not going to. Well, that's so, an interesting thing, Steve. Right. right. So the yeah. law requires you to tell them that you lost a gun. That's right. Uh, it's the same thing with uh, the concealed carry law about me notifying that I have a firearm. I had I have many clients that get drunk with a gun on them. They get pulled over. So they either they have to notify because they have a concealed carry license in their arm and can incriminate themselves to a DUI with a gun, which means a felony. Yep. Or they keep their mouth shut and violate the concealed carry law, which is a misdemeanor. Is that shaken out legally yet? Not yet. I've Every time I make the argument, I get a good deal. Yeah. So <laughs> it's never gone up. Well, and for good reason, right? Because, yeah. uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm an old criminal defense war horse, right? I mean, I, I still believe that you just don't talk. Don't talk. And I any, agree. Anything that would require somebody to make statements or to confess, uh, even in the context of what we're talking about, to one thing, when it's going to basically create admissions on another, I say, you don't do it. It's unconstitutional. Yeah, I, I agree. There's a lot of talking heads out there um, that are not in the trenches like you and I. They're more academics on, on self-defense law. They've written books, et cetera, et cetera. And they say, well, you should say this, that, and the other thing. You know, you should, you should say you'll cooperate. You should say, there's the gun. You know, I want to cooperate. I want to talk to my attorney first, all this. I'm like, absolutely not, because I've been in combat. I know what tunnel vision is like. And once you start talking, you know, your mind just starts going. Uh, it takes what? I think it's two uh, sleep cycles for your mind to accurately remember something that's stressful. Is that so, right? Yeah. yeah. And well, police are actually, most departments have a policy. They don't talk after shooting for 48 hours or so. And there's a reason for that. So I always tell clients, just keep your mouth shut. You know, I got to start using that. So that is, if that if there's a policy and there is a, there's research reasoning behind it that's written either in FOP stuff or any law enforcement agency, then- uh, I'm sure you can find it. I'm going to use it. I'm sure you can find because... it. It's taught at Tactical Defense Institutes where I learned it. I train down there every year, uh, a few different classes I take. Because so. I can't remember the last time I had a client who was interrogated and they gave him 48 hours to think about it. That's what I use from a, an instructional standpoint, because if there's some psychology behind it, it makes total sense that it takes a, a moment for your mind to really clearly remember things. Because you have that adrenaline dump, right? Yep. And things are cloudy. And I've been through that adrenaline dump. I mean, your heart's racing and it's you're get it literally is tunnel vision. It's crazy. Well, it's it, it you'll is say a, things like, "Did that just happen?" Right? You or remember what, what you said? I mean, you've been in accidents. I've been yep. things have gone on. And you're like, "What just happened?" And it takes it does it it takes it really you does. a minute to kind of break it down and for right. your mind to register what you just saw, right. whether you did it or not. And if an officer is given two or three sleep cycles after a stressful event before he or she has to make a statement, then the reason is is that what they say in the heat of the moment or right afterwards can be unreliable. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. So that's that's why it frustrates me, people who make these statements to the general public in the concealed carry industry, that they should say these things. Well, you're going to mess it up, to be quite frank. Oh, I, you know, I hear this nonsense on YouTube. There's somebody on YouTube. I saw they're like, all right, you should get a lawyer first. You should say some of the stuff you're saying. Yeah. I'm just like, no, don't say a damn thing. Don't so talk to my lawyer. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Say no statements. I want a lawyer. 
nothing else. It gets interesting because if you have a dead body and maybe they threw their knife in the bushes or something, you're going to want to point that out, right? That they're, oh, there's a weapon they had in the bushes so it doesn't get lost. But I, I think that might be infrequent and just not very realistic. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, there's going to be exceptions to every rule. But if I had to give like general advice to everybody, you'll remember that a lawyer first, and then we can talk about, do you tell them where the knife is? Because that fact's not going to change. And there's some tips I give, you know, there's witnesses, have them call 911. Don't you call 911 because it's going to be recorded. Yep. Right. Things like that. And and get the attorney there. And they always say, well, they're going to be suspicious of that. Doesn't matter. That suspicion doesn't come into evidence. Or ask for an ambulance because you're you're having a panic attack and call your co- your attorney in the ambulance. Yep. If you There's, need to. There, it, it, the the safest thing to do here's here's what I tell people in in scenarios. It's like just say I don't want to talk until I have a lawyer. And if they try to influence you, they meaning law enforcement tries to talk you out of that position, then you have to understand one thing: they are trying to talk you out of it for a reason, right? They, the more they want you to make statements, the less benefit. It, it is to you in the more help us to help you. Have you watched that YouTube video? Do not talk to the police, but professor James Dwayne, I have not, you should watch it. It's a three part series. It was filmed when I was in law school. It's gone viral. It's had like 6 million views. He's written a book. He goes on tour. I now. have seen that. I have seen, so that. I was actually yeah. in his class. And, and oh, okay. when this was recorded, I was, I was at Regent. I was in law school and the officer who was teaching that with him is a friend of mine. I, I was in his class. He was a classmate and he was a Virginia beach detective. And he talks about crazy things in that video they do to get you to talk. My favorite was they would used to bring in one of those old tape recorders with the five buttons on it. Yeah. And they'd hit record. They'd turn it off and be like, all right, man, off the record, what's going on? And the guy starts talking because the damn room's bugged. Yeah. Right? This is like yeah. 1985, right? And, and they'll start talking. They'll say, I'll let you walk right out that door if you tell me what happened. And they tell them what happened, walk them out the door and into a cell. Yep. Yeah. And things like that. You know, it's just really interesting. And they don't, and I don't fault the police for this, right? I mean, just, but don't, you don't have to trust what, I, I maybe the simplest thing to say is this: you can always go supply information to the police later. You don't have to do it now, sure. and if you do it later, at least then you've had the forty-eight hours like the rest of the world would get in a similar situation, or the or the rest of the law enforcement would get in a similar situation. So it happens in DUIs, right? They scare you with losing your license, spending a night in jail. People don't want to do that, so they take these tests, and also now they have evidence against you. Yeah, now they've got evidence and everything else. So it's like the more, and I say it's about refusals all the time. It's like if you tell the police you're not going to take the breath test or you feel sobriety and it pisses them off, you're probably doing the right thing. They will be relentless about it. Yep, yeah. they will. They will keep you for hours upon hours Yep. until they just try to beat you, and you're like, well, I just, okay, what do you want to hear? Yeah. And I've had cases where there are patently, from my perspective anyway, false confessions, but uh, just like that, it happens. And it, it, did we, this may have come up with the, in another context, but um, false confessions happen all the time. I agree. But it's never on the case I'm working on, ironically. No prosecutor has ever said, well, this guy confessed and it's a false confession. We're going to go forward anyway. The point is, People don't know it's happening at the time. So you just have, there, there's got to be a lot of caution about it. So later on, when you're vindicated after doing 15 years in a joint because they found DNA or they found something else or somebody else confessed, I mean, that's too late, right? So yeah. for, your best bet is not to give any confession, not to give any statements. But maybe we have uh, extended beyond the scope of guns here, but maybe not. So this has been fascinating. And, and I tell you what, we will, uh, our website should be up 
I'm guessing within a month or so. Yeah, we'll, I would we'll, think. I think our, our people would have that up and running. And you'll get Derek's bio there. Until then, they can get it at munitionsgroup.com. Check yep. them out, munitionsgroup.com. Anything gun related, this is the guy. I have his number in my phone, and that's the guy I call. He knows it all. So, uh, this has been Lawyer Talk with Derek DeBrus, off the record, on the air, at least until now. <laughs>